following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Uh, we are this morning in Psalm 132. If you're going to open up your Bible uh, for the scripture reading, I'm going to read the scripture reading and Luke is going to come up and preach for us. Uh, we are in Christ in the Psalms, our third sermon this summer in Christ in the Psalms, Psalm 132. That's page 486 uh, in your pew Bible if you're looking for that. 486. Take, give you a moment to get there. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to take one of those with you. Uh, our hope is to be a church that just feasts on the Word of God as a daily practice, that we spend time in His Word. Um, yeah, it, it gives life, it pierces and transforms as we see Jesus through the power of the Spirit and the words of Scripture. So if you don't have a Bible, please, please take one of those home with you. Again, Psalm 132. This is a song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or go into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne." For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, Park Church. How are we doing? So good. Awesome. Glad to hear it. So my name is Luke, and I am the student minister here at Park Church, and we are continuing our summer series today in the book of Psalms. We're doing a series. Every summer we do a series called Christ in the Psalms, Christ in the Psalms. And we have arrived at Psalm 132, Psalm 132. And I got to tell you, this Psalm is crazy. It is crazy. And there's so much packed in here. Uh, I'm not going to be able to get through all of it, but there's going to be a couple points I'm hoping to, you know, just kind of dial in on. But man, buckle up. It's going to be crazy today. This Psalm addresses perhaps the most important question in the world. The most important question in the world, which is, when I am in trouble, when I'm in trouble, what do I do? What do I do? When pain, when suffering, when evil, when confusion comes into my life, where do I go? Where do I turn? 
The previous two psalms, Psalms 130 and Psalm 131, tell us what to do. They tell us what to do, which is you turn to God. Turn to God. Put your hope in the Lord. Turn to God. Don't turn to things like the, the things of this world, like, like entertainment or money or wealth or power or alcohol or drugs or sports or games or love or sex or human approval. Don't turn to those thing, these things of the world for your hope. Don't turn to those things. And, and again, most of those things aren't bad, but none of them truly satisfy. None truly satisfy. At best, the things of this world can only dull or delay the pain and the suffering of this life. So we all know what to do. We all know we're supposed to turn to the Lord for our hope. We know what to do, but the question is, how? How do you do it? How does a person practically and effectively hope in the Lord when pain and suffering come? Psalm 132 teaches us how to hope in the Lord. And it does so in three movements, in three movements. And here are the three movements. Number one, David's desire. Number two, Israel's idolatry. Go ahead and hit the next slide now. Number two, Israel's idolatry. And number three, God's grace. Number one, David's desire. Number two, Israel's idolatry. And number three, God's grace. But the main point that I hope that we see this morning is that our hope can only be found through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to just pause for a moment, knowing that you are here, knowing that you are a good God, that you're a good Father that loves his children, that wants to be with us, that desires communion and fellowship with us. And we thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is present, that you love us, that you care for us. And Lord, we just pray right now, as we seek your face, as we study your scriptures, your holy word, we pray, God, that you would open up our eyes, open up our hearts. Lord, I know for me, I, I tend to get distracted. It's like, oh, it's Sunday, it's Father's Day. It's, there's so many things going on. What am I doing after church? What have I got to do this week? Work, stuff, life. Oh, we got summer camp coming up. We got so many things going on in our lives, in our minds. But Lord, we just pray for the next 20 minutes, for the next little bit, that you would just inhabit this time, that our eyes would be fixed upon you, that the things of this world, both, both good and bad, both, both you know, pretty and ugly, that those things would just kind of like, I don't know, just kind of fall away for just a brief moment that you might inhabit this time, that we might fix our eyes upon you, Jesus, and that you would show us your face, show us your heart, show us your love for us. And, that, and Lord, just pray that the words that come out of my mouth would not be mine, but rather yours instead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, next slide, first point, or, or first movement. David's desire, David's desire. Let's read verses one through five again. Verses one through five. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes nor slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. This psalm begins with a plea, with a prayer, with a request, which is, God, please remember David's desire to build a dwelling place for you. What? What's going on here, huh? What's going on? This is crazy. What? Of all the things to ask God to remember, it's like, like why this? Hey, uh, 
He remembered David because he wanted to build a house for you. Cool. What? What's going on here? To answer this question, we're going to do a quick history lesson of the world. Hooray! History lesson time. Buckle up. Here we go. In the beginning, in the beginning, God's perfect and powerful and glorious and healing presence was here on earth with humanity. He was together with us in communion. He was here. There was no pain. There was no sadness. There was no suffering. There was no evil. There was no death here on the earth. Everything on this earth initially was perfect because God's presence was here with us. But in Genesis chapter 3, humanity decided we didn't want God. We didn't want God. So we rejected him and we went our own way. And unfortunately, when we rejected God, his presence left. His presence left the earth, which caused everything to go sideways really, really fast. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned by eating a fruit. God said, hey, don't eat that fruit. And Adam and Eve said, no, we're going to eat the fruit. So they ate the fruit. That was the sin, right? Okay, they didn't do what they were told. But in the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 4, Adam and Eve's kids murder each other. They murder each other. Things went south really, really fast when God left the world. Wars started happening. More murder started happening. We read throughout Genesis that slavery started happening. Exploitation started happening. All sorts of brokenness entered into the world. And the world was falling apart. The world was falling apart just within the first few chapters of this book. However, in the next book, in Exodus, something amazing happened. God's presence returned to the earth. God's presence returns. In fact, he comes and he delivers his people out of slavery and he dwells with them. He communes with them. He tabernacles with them. Even though we rejected him, when his people cried out, God showed up. God showed up. He took the form. God came back to the earth and he took the form of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And his very being, God's presence, rested upon the Ark of the Covenant. It rested. God's, the, the Ark of the Covenant, which was the footstool of God, his presence was on the Ark in a tent called the Tabernacle. We're going to talk more about the Ark in just a second. But the point is, for now, when God was around, when God was around, everything was good again. Everything was good again. I mean, just think about it, right? There was no more, like, exploitation or violence or slavery because God wiped out the army of Israel's slave owners. He wiped out Egypt's army. There was no hunger. There was no poverty because God was providing food for them in the form of manna and quail from heaven, just like out of nowhere. What? Food just showing up out of nowhere? Cool. No more poverty. No more hunger. There was minimal crime and injustice because God provided a brilliant justice and economic system for Israel. Despite the fact that humanity rejected God, God still showed up. He still showed up when his people cried out. And when God showed up, everything got better. Everything was better. We as a race, we as humanity, we were incomplete without God. We were incomplete without him. Let me try and illustrate it like this. 
Um, so I know that most of you guys here are not Denver natives, so I don't know if this is going to land. But I don't know if you know this, but on Monday, a miracle happened. A miracle happened, which is the Denver Nuggets won the NBA championship. <clears throat> Woo! Four people cheered. Hooray! Cool. Did anyone, go, did anyone go to the parade? Anybody go to the parade? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay, cool. Like seven people went to the parade. Great. I asked the first service, and there was like literally like four people raised their hands. Like, yeah, four of us went to the parade. Cool. It took 47 long years, 47 years to get to the mountaintop, for the Nuggets to get to the mountaintop. 47 years. And for the last few years, it felt like we were close. It felt like the Denver Nuggets were really, really close, but just not quite there. They had a great coach. They had uh, the two-time MVP, Nikola Jokic. But unfortunately, the Nuggets just kept on getting bounced early from the playoffs. It felt like their team was missing a piece. It felt like their team was incomplete. Most people would argue that the reason for the incompleteness of the Denver Nuggets over the last couple years was because on April the 12th, 2021, one of their star players, a dude named Jamal Murray, tore his ACL. And he was out for 18 months. 18 months. And that last, that, I think that was like two playoff runs. So for 18 months, and the Nuggets just were not a complete team without him. However... On October 19th, 2022, so during this last season, Jamal Murray returned. He returned, and then suddenly, everything got better when he was on the court. Everything got better when he was on the court. However, it didn't have to go that way. It didn't have to go that way. His teammate, because his teammates could have been like your typical spoiled athlete, and they could have been like, man, we don't need him. We don't need him. He's a ball hog. That guy, Jamal Murray, he shoots the ball too much. Like he, In fact, he takes 14 shots per game approximately. He takes 14 shots a game. And you know what? Those 14 shots, they should have been mine. They should have been my shots. Without him, like we were fine without him. I should have shot those 14 times. I should have gotten the glory. I should have gotten the paycheck. We were good. We are good without him. However, thankfully, the Denver Nuggets teammates did not do that. They didn't do that. They gave Jamal Murray the car keys, and he helped lead them to a championship on Monday. Look, here's the deal. Wait, why am I talking about this? Why are we talking about the Nuggets? Look, I am not saying that, like, Jamal Murray is Jesus or Michael Jordan or anything like that, okay? But, but, okay, but, what I am saying is, just as the Nuggets are better with Jamal Murray at the center of their offense, so also are our lives better with God at the center. And the thing is, David knew this as well. David knew this too, which is why he tries to bring the Ark of the Covenant, the footstool of God, to Jerusalem and build a temple for him, to build a dwelling place. This was David's desire, which was, I want God to dwell with me. I need him here. With God at the center of my life, I'm not better than anyone, but I sure am better off. With God at the center of my life, I'm not better than anyone, but I sure am better off. I want God to dwell here in the center of my life. I want his kingdom to come. I want his will to be done in my life and in the lives of the people around me. 
This was David's desire, for God to dwell with him. So the question is, of course, is that your desire too? Is that your desire too? Have you placed God at the center of your life? Is he at the middle? Is he at the center, at the core of your very being? Or is God an accessory to your life? Is God a side hustle for you? Again, I want to suggest to you, we're not going to be better than anyone with God at the center of our lives. We're not going to be better than anyone with God at the center of our lives, but I think that we will be better off. That's our first point, or our first movement, um, David's desire. Next slide, second movement, Israel's idolatry. Israel's idolatry. Okay, so the psalmist establishes that we need God in our lives. We need God in our lives. But unfortunately, we've got a problem. Let's read verse 6. Verse 6. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of J.R. What? What a weird verse. What's going on here? This is kind of strange. However, for the original hearers of this psalm, for the original readers, this verse is super packed. This verse is packed to the original readers. So let's do some detective work and let's unpack it first by going over some vocabulary. First thing is Ephrathah. Ephrathah is the ancient name for the town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem. The fields of Jair, the fields of Jair is another name for a town called Kiriath Jairim. Kiriath Jairim. So like Jair, Jairim, right? Does that make sense? It's another name for the town of Kiriath Jairim. And we learn from verse 8, if we scroll down a little bit, we learn from verse 8 that the pronoun it that's used in verse 6, it refers to the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. So what does this verse mean? This verse means that the Ark of the Covenant was found in Kiriath-Jearim. What's going on here? The psalmist is referring back to 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 7. 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 7, when Israel lost the Ark of the Covenant. So guess what? Story time again. Hooray! History time. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, what was going on? In 1 Samuel chapter 4, Israel was at war with the Philistines. Israel was at war with the Philistines, and they were getting beat. They were getting whoops. They were getting their butts kicked. So the Israelites were, the Israelites were kind of like, uh, uh, what do we do? What do we do? We're getting creamed. We're getting beat up by the Philistines. How are we going to beat these guys? How are we going to beat them? And I'd imagine somebody went, hey, hey, uh, I got an idea. I've got an idea. Hey, so you know how uh, God's presence resides on the Ark of the Covenant, right? You know how God's presence, you know, like Moses and like the pillar of cloud, pillar of, you know, all that stuff, how the, God's presence uh, re- resides on the Ark? And everyone's like, yeah? And the dude's like, then I got an idea. Why don't we bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle and make God fight for us? And everyone was like, yeah, that's a great idea. I think that's a super idea. So they go get the Ark and they bring it to the Israelite encampment and everyone's super pumped. They are so pumped. They're like, yeah, we can't lose now. We're going to win this battle because we have God as our secret weapon. The Ark of the Covenant is our secret weapon. He's going to go kill all these people for us. We're invincible. Hooray. So they go fight the battle. Totally sure. Totally, absolutely confident that God is on their side. But then they get crushed again. 
They got crushed. In fact, the Bible says that 30,000 of, of the Israelite soldiers died that day. 30,000 soldiers died. So the Philistines, what happens is, you know, they capture the Ark. They capture the Ark of the Covenant and bring it back with them as a trophy, as a trophy. But then bad things start happening to the Philistines. They start dying off as well. And so they're like, hey, get this thing out of here. Like, what's going on here? This ark is killing us. Get it out of here. So they put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart and they hitch it, they hitch it to two cows and they say, get out of here, cows. And so the cows start bringing the Ark of the Covenant along. And it just so happens that the Ark of the Covenant, the cows end up wandering back to Israel. In fact, they end up back in a town called Beth Shemesh. And so they're like, hey, so the people of Beth Shemesh, they're like, hey, what are those two cows? Look, it's the Ark of the Covenant. Awesome. Hey, I wonder what's inside. And so what they do is they go, and if anyone's seen Indiana Jones, you know, you don't do this, but they go and they open up the, they try and open up the Ark and see what's inside. You know, you're not supposed to do that. And it turns out that 70 of them get killed by trying to open up and find out the contents of the Ark of the Covenant. So then the people of Beth Shemesh, again, an Israelite town, they're like, okay, get this ark out of here. We need to kick this out of here too. And so eventually the Ark of the Covenant gets to a town called Kiriath-Jerarim, or aka the Fields of Jar. And it stayed there for about 20 years. However, the story's not done. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, 20 years later, when David tries to take the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem or to Jerusalem with him, this dude named Uzzah touches the ark and he gets killed too. What's going on here? The Israelite army, the Philistines, the town of Beth Shemesh, and Uzzah, they all die in the presence of the ark of the covenant. And so we're kind of like, why? What's going on here? Why do people keep dying when they get into the presence of the ark or therefore the presence of God? Why do people keep on dying when they get near God? Is the God of the Bible mean? Is he a mean God that just enjoys like zapping people whenever he gets the chance? Is that the God that we serve and worship? No, definitely not. No, the God of the Bible wants to be near us. Near us. He wants to be near. He wants to be close. He loves us and desperately wants to be with us. But the problem is his greatness and his holiness cause us to shrivel. His greatness and his holiness destroy us. Let me try and illustrate it like this. Before I was a youth pastor, I was a police officer. I was a police officer for about 10 years. And one day I got a call for service, a call for service, and the call came out. There is a neighbor, one of our neighbors is beating up his girlfriend. And we're like, okay, cool. Another DV call. So we go over to respond to the call. And as we arrive, as we approach the apartment building, we're outside and we can hear from the outside a bunch of screaming and yelling and shouting. We hear a woman's voice and we hear her yelling, stop, stop, please stop hitting me, stop hurting me, stop, please. And we hear a man's voice yelling and screaming at her, you deserve this. You deserve this. You shouldn't have cheated on me. You shouldn't have done whatever. And you deserve, it. you deserve it. So we open the door. And we see this big dude. He's probably like 6'3", maybe like 220. He's a big guy. Um, he probably had like a, I don't know, maybe like a 6 or 8 inch reach on me. And he probably had me by like 50 pounds, something like that. Big dude. And he was like basically on top of his girlfriend with his fists raised, punching her in the face. And so... We get in there, 
And when he sees us, when he sees us though, his eyes widen and he freezes. And then he like just quickly like gets off his girlfriend. And so immediately we run up to him and we hook him up. We put him in handcuffs. But the moment, and this was the most interesting part, but the moment that we handcuffed him, the moment that we put handcuffs on him, he shriveled. He shriveled. He collapsed on the ground, kind of like got in a fetal position, kind of like rolling around. He was crying like a baby. There was like boogie and snot coming out of his nose. It was, he was wailing like a baby rolling around on the ground. Again, remember, 6'3", 220, right? <clears throat> wailing like a baby. He's like a puddle. of. It was, it was like a mess. Until I walked in that door, he thought that he was the ultimate source of righteousness and justice. Because he thought in his mind, hey, beating up my girlfriend, this is justice. She deserved this, right? This is what he was shouting before I walked in. He thought that he was exacting justice upon her. But when a source of goodness and justice, a little bit greater than him, walked in, he melted. He totally melted. I recognize that I'm not that great. (laughs) My police department was not that great. I am not a very intimidating dude. But if a grown man can be reduced to a pool of tears and snot in my presence, in my presence, how much more would we melt in front of the presence of a holy and powerful almighty God? Again, God says that he wants, God wants desperately to be with his people. He wants so badly to be with us. But the problem is his glory, his holiness, his power would destroy us. We would melt, we would shrivel as well if we got into his presence as sinful people. And so this creates a huge problem, a huge problem, because on the one hand, we need God's presence in our lives. In our first point, right? We understood this. We need God in our lives. Everything falls apart. We're incomplete without him. We need God in our lives. But on the other hand, his presence also destroys us. His presence destroys us. We need God, but his presence destroys us. So what do we do? What do we do? That brings us to our last point, God's grace, God's grace. If you look at the poetic structure of Psalm 132, we notice that the first half of the psalm is a plea, it's a prayer to God in verses 1 through 10. The psalmist is asking God to dwell with us because we need him. But the second half of the psalm, verses 11 through 18, is God's response to that prayer, his response to that prayer. And I don't have a ton of time to go too deep into it, but basically we see in his response that God says that he will, he will dwell with his people. He sees, God's saying that he sees our pain, he sees our suffering, he sees our sadness, and he says that he will fix everything that is broken. He will make everything that's wrong right. He promises that. However, he's not going to do it in the way the psalmist wants or expects. Let's read verse 10 again. Verse 10. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The last line of the psalmist's prayer is that God wouldn't, that he would not turn his face from his anointed one. What's he saying here? What's he asking for? The Hebrew word for anointed one is the word Messiah or Christ in the Greek, Messiah or Christ. 
The psalmist, therefore, doesn't want God to turn his face away or to take away the blessing from his Messiah, from Jesus. He wants the Messiah, he wants Jesus to come in power with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He wants the Messiah to come and destroy evil and deliver him from his pain and his suffering. But the psalmist doesn't get his way at all. Because in Mark chapter 15, while he was hanging on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus says this because God the Father turned his back on him. God the Father turned his back on his anointed one, on his son, Jesus. And why does he do that? It's because in his first incarnation, the Messiah didn't come to beat evil. He came to bear it. The Messiah didn't come in his first incarnation to beat evil, to destroy evil. He came to bear it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this. For our sake, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Noah, can you hit the next slide? <clears throat> for our sake, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Park Church, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. Because while Jesus was on the cross, a cosmic exchange took place. A cosmic exchange took place because Jesus took the pain and the suffering and the guilt and the shame and the death that we deserved upon himself on the cross, and then he gave us the love and the joy and the peace and the righteousness that he deserved. He took what we deserved on himself and he gave us what he deserved. And he promises us, Jesus promises us, that regardless of what we've done, no matter how much we have rejected God in the past, no matter what we've done, if anyone ABCs, if anyone A admits that they're a sinner, admits that they need help, admits their brokenness, B, believes that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and rose again from the grave. And C, chooses to follow after him with all their heart for all their days. If anyone A, B, C's, admits, believes, and chooses, then they can dwell with God again. They can dwell with the king again and find perfect and total peace. So let me conclude by going back to our original question, which is, how do we hope in the Lord? How do we hope in the Lord? When everything is falling apart in our lives, what do we do? What do we do? The Christian remembers what Jesus did for them. The Christian remembers the sacrifice that Jesus made for them. And we take hold of what he promises us. Let me read from Revelation chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This 
is the promise of the gospel. This is the promise of the gospel. And this is how we hope in the Lord, by looking to the person of Jesus. That's our first step, at least. We say, Lord, my life might be going crazy. My life might be going sideways, but I'm going to look to you, Jesus, because you, you went through hell for me first. You went through hell for me. And so I, I, I can trust in you, and I know that you will deliver. You'll take care of things, even though everything is going sideways. That is the step, first step. And when we take that first step, then God works everything out, and then, uh, then God will work everything out. While on his deathbed, as he was dying from cancer a couple weeks ago, uh, there was a pastor named Tim Keller. Um, he was the lead pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Uh, he passed away a couple weeks ago, but his final words were, this, were these. There's no downside for me leaving. There's no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. So the question is, have you found and internalized this incredible eternal hope? I want to encourage you, take it, because it's yours if you want it. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I confess that I tend to turn to all these other things for my hope, whether it's I don't know, <laughs> stupid things that don't make any sense, whether it's, you know, human approval or, um, you know, a 401k or retirement or, you know, modern medicine or, or whatever it is, Lord. Um, Lord, forgive me for turning to these things that, that don't ultimately give me lasting hope. Jesus, you've shown me throughout my life. You've shown me through your scriptures. You've shown us through your scriptures that when our hope is placed in you, everything gets better. We recognize that we are incomplete without you, but we also recognize that our sin prevents us from getting close to you. And so God, we pray that you would forgive us for the sins that we know that we commit and even for the sins that we don't even realize that we're committing. Lord, we ask for your healing. We ask for your forgiveness. And we ask, Lord, that your presence would be here, that you would show us and, and open our eyes to the fact that you love us more than life, that you, paid, that, that you paid the price for us, that you spared no expense, that you loved us so much that you would die for us, that you would sacrifice everything. You gave up everything for us. You loved us to the end. Help us to remember that, to see that, to internalize it. And Lord, perhaps some of us have been hearing this gospel message for, for years, maybe for decades even, and we've heard this over and over and over and over again. Lord, we pray that this good news, that this gospel would be fresh in our hearts today. You'd freshen it, refreshen it once more, that we might remember and realize once again today that you love us. And perhaps even maybe because of that recognition, because of that new realization today, we pray, Lord, that we would be willing to share it with others, that we'd be sharing it with, with our friends and our family and our neighbors, with, our, with our, um, our coworkers, our classmates, our teammates, because of that love that you have for us, because we're so moved by your goodness to us. Lord, may we share that with the people in the front row of our lives too. And so, Lord, we pray that you continue to move us and change us and grow us in the gospel. Help us to understand your gospel more and more every day. And may we be moved by it forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.